This is the Best Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to Best Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Insurance Professional Resources. Pleased to have with us today Jim Barbieri from independent adjusting and investigation company Claims Advantage in Georgia. Jim is the president and CEO of Claims Advantage. He's a former police officer and has a BS degree in criminal justice. Mr. Barbieri is a certified insurance fraud investigator adjuster and has been conducting SIU investigations for over 30 years. Jim, thank you very much for joining us again this morning. Hey, John, thanks for having me. Today's discussion is the importance of effective interviewing and interrogation in the insurance claims process. And for our first question today, Jim, what is the purpose of an interview versus an an interrogation when handling a potentially fraudulent insurance claim? John, the interview is basically an informal conversation with the main purpose of gathering information. Um, As I mentioned in uh, other AM Best podcasts, it's imperative that the investigator prepare for the interview and conduct an extensive background investigation of the subject. You really need to do your homework before any interview is conducted. During the interview stage, you have to let the subject talk and don't interrupt. Let them get the story out and ask general questions like, okay, tell me what happened in the accident, uh, whatever, slip and fall, automobile accident. Uh, Obtaining information is the essential goal of any investigation. Interviews are the most important stage of an investigation because it is when you establish a rapport with the subject and gather information about the claim. For example, if I'm taking your statement, John, and I, you know, just small talk, I say, hey, John, I like your tie. Where did you get it? Or if you're from, say, Princeton, New Jersey, as an example, I talk about the beautiful farmlands in that area. Now, do you really think I care about John's tie or the beautiful farmland in Princeton, New Jersey? No. I'm just trying to establish some common interests with the interviewee, which helps them to relax and establish a feeling of trust. The interview is generally non-confrontational, and as you establish a rapport with the subject, he or she will likely be more cooperative in providing information that is essential in the investigation of the case. Uh, You all heard the expression that you get more with sugar and water than with vinegar and baking soda. If you approach the interviewee aggressively and evade his or her personal space, the subject will become closed off and defensive, and it will be very difficult to gather the pertinent information. So once the interview is completed and you uncover inconsistencies, then the investigator can transition into an interrogation. Uh, If the investigator suspects that the interviewee perpetrated the fraud. Now the main purpose of an interrogation is to get a confession. While maintaining a professional demeanor the interrogation becomes more confrontational and direct questions are asked. In past interviews and interrogations that I have conducting on fraudulent uh, insurance claims, I have always focused on the minute details of the incident. For example, in a stage collision, 
The fraud participants will rehearse the most basic details of the collision. The investigator needs to ask detailed questions about seating positions in the vehicle. And in several cases, the alleged passengers uh, gave different stories of where people were sitting in the vehicle. John may say, I was sitting in the right front passenger seat. While Frank said that John was sitting in the left seat, rear seat. Also, the investigator should ask questions about the accident scene as many of the jump-in passengers, which, as you know from previous podcasts, a jump-in is a person that was not in the vehicle, uh, they were never on the scene, and they'll, and they'll give different descriptions of the, the area. I always ask, you know, was the vehicle moved to the side of the road after the accident? Uh, you know, did, did they stand in the street while they were exchanging information, or were they standing behind a certain vehicle? And nine times out of ten, they'll provide different answers. So, Jim, what type of preparation goes into uh, an initial interview? John, as I previously said, the investigator needs to do his or home, her, her homework and get background material on the interviewee. Knowledge of the subject's past claims of criminal history can be used to assess his or her credibility during the interview. Once your homework is done, then you need to choose a place to conduct the interview that is convenient. Could be a quiet coffee shop, you know, local Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, you know, near the subject's home that is not threatening to the interviewee. Again, your goal is to make the individual as comfortable as possible so that the subject will talk freely without interruption. The investigator needs to be receptive and not take any notes initially. Uh, during the interview phase, listen intently to show that you are interested in what the subject has to say. I actually violated one of these rules uh, a couple weeks ago. I was taking a statement on an auto theft claim from the insured, and I was asking too many uh, rapid-fired questions, you know, as, and uh, the insured says, hey, let me answer the question. So it's important to let them talk freely. Uh, the investigator needs to be friendly and do not cross your arms, which is, suggests that you are guarded or uninterested in what he or she has to say. The investigator needs to show the interviewee what he has to say is very important to get the pertinent information to reach a conclusion to the case. So then, Jim, at what point do you move into the interrogation? After you let the interviewee finish telling the story and you lock him into a story, then the investigator can, can transition into direct questions. Direct questions are necessary to focus on the inconsistencies or to clarify the information that the subject provided. The interrogation should be conducted like an interview as the subject should be allowed to speak freely and direct questions will be used to clarify inconsistent statements. However, during the interrogation, the interviewer is more aggressive and intense. That's the difference between an interview and an interrogation. An interview is more friendly, it's more conversational, whereas an, uh, an interrogation is more intense and aggressive. The investigator may ask the same question several different ways to see if the subject provides different answers. Again, the investigator is more adversarial, and he or she may bluff the subject to elicit a, a confession. Uh, 
In a previous podcast, I mentioned the case in Massachusetts where I obtained a confession from our insured at a district court. The insured was involved in a stage collusion with a major uh, fraud ring leader. And the insured uh, was at the district court for a hearing regarding the stolen vehicle. So I went to the district court and I was able to secure a conference room in the probation department. And during the interrogation, I placed several mugshots on the table, and one of them was the fraud ringleader. And as he's looking at the mugshot, you can see he's getting nervous. So that's, I was reading his body language there. I told the insured that the police had the ringleader in custody, which they did, and he is starting to sing, which means talk. And he is basically saying that the interviewee set up the accident. And I told him, you know, I'm not trying to jam him up, that I know that the ringleader is lying and it would be in his best interest to tell me exactly what happened in this staged accident. He eventually uh, became nervous and he confessed. So some investigators may use other techniques as getting physically close to the subject or making them uncomfortable, uncomfortable during an interrogation. I even heard of some situations uh, you know, where you do an interrogation, uh, where they turn up the heat, uh, if it's a warm day or, you know, uh, and it's important to do, uh, the interrogation in a, in a quiet, uh, area, uh, like a conference room or an office as compared to like a donut shop in, a, in an interview. Um, some investigators may change the tone of their voice when asking hard hitting questions. So Jim, what's the best method to record a confession? The best method, John, is obviously to use a digital recorder. But as a supplement, I always wear a body camera because it, it's, it, it protects the investigator where he can prove the confession is made voluntarily and of their own free will. Of course, the investigator needs to know the state laws regarding uh, obtaining a video as to whether the state is a one-party consent where only one party who is the investigator needs to consent, or if it's a two-party consent where both parties need to consent to the recording. But of course, when we use a, record, a digital recorder in the statement, we always ask permission to record the interview. Um, I like the fact that video shows the body movements or facial expressions uh, that can be an indication of deception. Videotape statements are more difficult to challenge as compared to signed or audio recorded statements. The main reason why I wear a body camera always is to protect myself against allegations of coercion uh, to provide a confession. Also, there are times when it's necessary to pause the audio recording. You know, if somebody needs to use the bathroom or some, some unexpected event occurs, but the video continues to run. So if the claimant insured a witness makes a false allegation while the recorder is off, we have the video as protection as uh, against such allegations. Jim, one final question today. How do you know when the interviewee is not being truthful or they're being deceptive? Uh, again, you have to read the body language. Uh, I just did a statement on an auto theft in the Atlanta area. And when I started asking the tough questions, the insured, when he would answer, he'd, he wouldn't look at me. He, he would look away. And uh, he was squirming in his seat. 
when I ask certain questions. So these are signs of deception. Uh, there's other behaviors like nervous laughter. When you ask a question that really isn't funny and then all of a sudden they start laughing. Uh, there's nervous tics. Um, again, as I mentioned about, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing a statement, I don't cross my arms, or, um, which shows that you're, you know, being closed off. And that's, that's also an indicator of deception when, it, when the interviewee does that. Um, you know, is the subject's behavior appropriate for the situation? Uh, you know, when you hit a nerve, so to speak, when an interviewee gets defensive, a lot of people ask, uh, when I take statements, why do you need that information? Um, especially, you know, when I'm asking a pertinent question. Uh, I usually ask financial questions to see if the interviewee is experiencing any financial problems, which would be a motive to stage an insurance claim. Usually when they get defensive, that means they're hiding something. Uh, they also tend to turn questions into questions. Again, again getting back to that uh, auto theft case, case in Atlanta, um, when I got the claim, uh, the police uh, got a hit on the flock. I don't know if you would know what that means. It's F-L-O-C-K. It's a camera system that law enforcement has access to, and it's a license plate reader. So when a vehicle goes by, the flock camera takes a picture of the license plate, and then it searches um, the plate to see if it's stolen or if it's wanted for kidnapping, murder, or any, any uh, all hosts of crimes. But in this particular case, the flock camera got a hit on two uh, on two flock cameras, uh, got a hit on the uh, stolen vehicle's license plate after the theft. It was only a couple of hours later. Um, so uh, the flock system also showed that this insured travels the same route every day. And this is significant because... This route is 25 minutes away from the insured's house. So when I asked him how to get to a specific address, the insured turned that question into a question and asked me, what is the shortest distance between two points? And he was basically dodging the question. Uh, another telltale sign is rapid eye movement, you know, fidgeting in the chair if, or if it's, if it's a female or male playing with their hair. So those are all signs of deception. Um, you also look for speech patterns. One telltale sign that someone may not be telling the whole truth is irregular speech. And that is why when I do the non-confrontational interview, I determine the person's normal speech patterns and how he speaks and how he asks, uh, how he answers uh, simple questions you know, like what vehicle do you drive daily? What is your name, your date of birth? When the interviewee's mannerisms and speech, tone, or patterns change when interrogated, that usually suggests deception. Other signs of deception would be when the interviewee just provides a very basic description of the accident. You know, we got rear-ended at the stop sign, and that's about it. Again, as I mentioned previously, they rehearse the most basic details of the incident. But on the flip side, you may get a claimant or insured or, uh, who may be trying to be convincing 
or maybe they're trying to convince themselves about the story and provide too many details about an accident that normally uh, would not be provided by an insured or claimant, you know, when you're doing an interview. I had one insured tell me that uh, he left 37 feet of skid mark prior to rear-ending the claimant. So it's like, you know, what did you get out of your vehicle and go measure the skid marks? So sometimes they provide too much information. And John, finally, the takeaway in this podcast when, when you're doing interviews is to first establish a rapport. That's the most important thing to get the, the interviewee to trust you. And then, as I said, let them talk freely without interruption uh, during the interview to get as much information as possible. And then, if appropriate, transition into an interrogation if you suspect fraud and focus on the inconsistencies. Jim, thank you very much for joining us again this morning. John, thank you for having me. You've just listened to Jim Barbieri from Independent Adjusting and Investigation Company Claims Advantage in Georgia. And special thanks to today's producer, Frank Bowinkle. And thank you all for joining us for Best Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ambest.com slash professional resources. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professional Resources features valuable insurance industry content, including searchable profiles of client-recommended insurance attorneys, adjusters, and expert service providers. Brought to you by AM Best, known worldwide as a respected source of insurance industry news and information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.